what do they know of cricket who only cricket know i don't get to pick and choose what i remember i don't remember many important moments from my life the ones i do remember seem ordinary if not random these trivial memories are often the only ones i have overshadowing my recollection of that day when i look back on the world cup final i only remember pat cummins running into bowl i've been obsessed with the quest for magical moments for the last decade those moments in live music comedy theater art or sport when humans transcend when they reach out in a moment that seems unreal and mystical when you get a raw indisputable glimpse of beauty of the sublime of the divine you desperately try to describe it with unworthy phrases like runners high flow state or in the zone but they all fall short those moments that make you pause midway through your reminiscences struck with the epiphany that it's pointless and barely doing justice except defeat and sigh remorsefully you just had to be there tickets for live events are always insanely expensive i can only justify this frivolous expenditure if i formally brand the experience as an attempt in my quest it was successful that day we all felt it even though some of us were more than 300 feet away sitting high up in the nosebleeds pat cummins charged in sinuously fluidly in rhythm as he tore through the wind head ramrod straight staring the batsman down almost too perfect scarily perfect He banged the ball short. Virat Kohli chopped it onto his stumps. One thirty thousand people let out the loudest gasp you'll ever hear. Bang! The MC screamed into the speakers, and it resonated to stunned silence. It was surreal. There was no big visual or auditory blow-up, but everyone felt a colossal explosion. Cricket was just an excuse. Chapter One, twenty third March two thousand three, India versus Australia, World Cup final. I played cricket for years before I watched my first match on TV. Everyone has a story of how they fell in love with the sport. Many discovered it on the playground, where they formed their sweetest friendships and childhood memories. Others stumbled upon it through a parent, sibling, cousin, or friend. Maybe I'm caving into foolish romanticism, or maybe there's nothing to it. but the origin story is my favorite part i'll wager that even fans who dissect games like science might agree that the purest form of that sport is in that romantic memory the joy the beauty the seduction of what this sport can offer peaked on the playground or in those afternoons spent glued to the tv with their family or friends as they bonded over a common goal the rest of a fan's life is spent in the elusive pursuit of those memories chasing that joy that beauty that seduction that euphoria and sport again i started watching cricket because of my grandfather my nana ji we didn't have cable television at home my parents believed that it would affect my academic performance i was in third grade mind you but the jokes on them my grades were somehow still affected by a stroke of luck after years of coaxing and cajoling Nanaji decided it was time he stepped out of India for the first time to come visit us in Oman. As a 64-year-old, he was comfortably settled into his self-admittedly only remaining hobbies: TV or BV. Every summer vacation in Accra, I watched him spend the entire day in front of the television. 
For hours he flipped from the news to office office, cricket to hum sab ek hai, to the news again, and then a movie to kaun banega karodpati before ending the night with more news. I had no doubt about his devotion to his two hobbies, and clearly, one more than the other. Alas, my parents must have forgotten this important tidbit. So, on a fine morning in the winter of 2002, Nanaji moved into our house. But within a day, he was highly displeased. You see, despite our best efforts, one critical element was conspicuously absent in our hospitality: the television. Naturally, our house was relegated to unlivable. With the cards against him, my father placed a call, grudgingly, to the cable provider. And by the following day, we had the magical technology in our house. My introduction to cricket was also my introduction to television, and by proxy. to the limitlessness of the world that's when the seed was planted where was i on a given hour of a given day during that winter vacation say 4 pm on 15 december if you're ever asked to bet on it i urge you to play the odds even if you're not a betting man and wager your entire house trust me despite the infinite possibilities i was always in the same spot every hour of every day I could be found a foot away from the television, sitting cross-legged or lying flat on my stomach, eyes wide, mouth open. My grandfather sat on a chair behind me, flipping channels at a whim. I don't get to pick and choose what I remember about Nana Ji from my childhood. Involuntarily, those are my first memories of us spending time together. We spent days watching Doordarshan sports as West Indies played India at home, and then India played away in New Zealand. We cheered and grumbled in unison at every boundary and wicket. We were separated by an age gap of nearly sixty years—a lifetime of unshared experiences. Yet, we analyzed cricket as equals, bonding over a shared purpose. Watching cricket felt familiar, like a sense of deja vu, an imprint of a previous life. Ever since I can remember, I have played cricket in the streets. Sachin. was an adjective for any kid in the zone that evening it was also a curse because invariably that kid rode that wave of delirium into smashing a window or denting a car and play would be abandoned after a severe telling off now sachin was not just an adjective but a name with a face on the television from ganguly to dravid to kumble to harbhajan every funny word was starting to make sense It felt like I was walking backwards and filling in the gaps. Despite the presence of those tall words, something about Virendra Sehwag and Zaheer Khan spoke to me even at that age. I decided to worship them. However, all good things must come to an end. After enjoying 90 days of our hospitality, Nana ji decided to leave. I didn't blame him. Sure. We had solved the absence of television immediately. Our life in Oman was not luxurious, but still quite comfortable by working-class standards. But Nana Ji had been away from Indian street food for three whole months. I don't care who you are; you could even be the Pope for argument's sake. But once you have tasted the pethas or the bedais or bhala tikis of Agra, after a certain amount of time away, it will start to gnaw even the strongest of men. So when he decided to leave, we understood. and bid him a teary farewell bystanders might have been confused by my excessive anguish i was only 8 years old after all they didn't know what i knew 
Nanaji's departure also implied an instant farewell to the world of television. If I had to put a number to it, most of my tears were dedicated to the latter. But don't tell him that. Astoundingly, in the most concrete example of a Christmas miracle, DD Sports remained in our house even after he left through pure inertia. It remained long enough for the entirety of the 2003 World Cup until the day I wished we never got it. With the tournament's arrival, I was thrown a new character and story in every game. The opening match coincided with the party at our house. I was the only one cheering for someone called Brian Lara. All my friends were eulogizing Lance Klusner. I had never watched Lara play before. I don't know why I was passionately rooting for the Prince of Port of Spain. In India's first match against the Netherlands, I watched Sachin in wonder, transfixed but unable to rationalize. In the game against Australia and that match against Pakistan, I learned why the bowlers I feared most in gully cricket were often nicknamed Brett Lee or Shoaib Akhtar. By now, the seed was starting to sprout. A routine was set. Every morning, we would watch the match previews on the news as we rebelliously got ready. During school, we would scrutinize performances and formulate strategies, us third graders who understood cricket better than anybody else. We mimicked the previous night's match in PT class or doing recess with a tiffin box as the bat and rolled up aluminum foil as the ball. If caught and reprimanded by our supervisor, we would resort to hand to book cricket. Every afternoon, I jumped out of the school bus before the door opened. I ran home frenetically like I was shot from a cannon, bag and water bottles swinging wildly like pendulums. I jammed the elevator buttons repeatedly, believing the myth that it made the cart move faster. Give me a break. At least I didn't believe in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. I rang the doorbell repeatedly, believing the myth that it made my mother move faster. I paced impatiently along the corridor. I barged in before the door was fully open. School bag flung to one corner, shoes flying to another, as a blur of color whizzed past my mother. In a few seconds, it solidified into her son crashing in front of the TV. Day-night games had another routine. Every night, we begged and pleaded to watch one more over, one more ball. Sadly, despite our most innovative bargains, I swear I'll solve 20 math problems tomorrow if we can watch till the next wicket falls. And well-practiced puppy dog eyes, our nights ended prematurely. We always ended up on the losing end of optimistic obsession pit against pertinacious parenting, forced to go to bed while a team's hopes hung in the balance. On one of those nights, I went to bed, disgruntled, naturally, praying that the Englishman would show mercy. I woke up to the newspapers waxing eloquently about a certain Ashish Nehra and his heroic 6 for 23. We mimicked his airplane celebration for years when we played. I stole snippets of matches whenever I could. I remember running to my father's office on a Friday. On a day when the office was deserted entirely, Thursday and Friday was the weekend, I could be found next to the sole TV in the corner of the games room, watching Mohammed Kev's rescue act against New Zealand. You didn't have to look hard to find the numerous buds. India and Australia were destined to meet in the final, of course. On the eve of the first semi-final, the Times of Oman ran a headline in a concerted effort to stand out. Forget Australia versus India. What about Sri Lanka versus Kenya? What about it? Well, first, Australia did to Sri Lanka what that Australian team was expected to do to any team. Then, Gangli decided to hold up his end against Kenya. Despite a princely century, I only remember him chewing his nails and gesturing anxiously at the part-time spinners. India's biggest threat in that match was the rain. We stubbornly refused to go to bed until the 20-over 
Duckworth Lewis threshold had been breached. So, it was set in stone what we knew a week ago, probably even before the tournament, probably for years, but now for sure. India versus Australia. Sevag, my hero, was in terrible form. His mother gave an interview on the national news on the eve of the final. She insisted that her motherly instinct told her that Sevag would score big. Now, a flower. On 23rd March, I went off the beaten track in our morning assembly. I wedged in an addendum for my team during the school prayer. I was convinced that my little act of indiscretion was enough. Even today, I still like to believe it was enough. Possibly, it got lost in the deluge of prayers that day. I was restless in school all day. I was convulsing with excitement on the school bus. It was still screeching to a halt when I jumped out like I was shot from a cannon. I ran home, bag and bottle swinging like pendulums. I jammed the elevator buttons repeatedly. I paced anxiously. The door barely opened. I whizzed past. School bag flung to the left. Shoes to the right. I crashed in front of the TV. I pressed the remote with trembling hands. That day, I learned a hard truth of life. Ricky Ponting was a tornado. Australia, a dynasty. Every boundary felt like a hard slap and every shot sounded like a whip crack. For an eternity, Australia piled on the misery. I sank deeper and deeper and deeper. But we held hope. We had Sachin. As he walked out, I felt goosebumps. It was time to right the wrongs. It was meant to be. Outdo the Aussies at their own game and write a script as heroic as Eden Gardens in 2001. It was going to be the ultimate underdog story. It was meant to be. It had to be. Sachin hit a boundary. We were on track. Then, he skied a pull. The ball hung in the air longer than usual. No, I whispered weakly. It came crashing down with all our hopes. As Sachin walked back, shaking his head, I did the only thing that made sense. I switched off the TV and went down to play. Going down to play was my panacea as an 8-year-old. It was the only escape from school, homework, parents, and peculiarly on that day, cricket. An hour later, my mother came down for her evening walk and informed us that rain had stopped the match. Sevag's mother must have wished on a monkey's paw because her son had finally come good when everyone else had failed. I didn't want this park in. We continued playing, hoping the game would be called off. We prayed to the same rain gods that we had cursed in the semi-final. It was not destined to be. By the time I dragged myself back home and switched on the TV, Sevag was also dragging himself back to the pavilion. The match had resumed and so had my misery. However, a young mind is endlessly hopeful. Even at 9 down when Hera hit two consecutive boundaries, I nurtured a little fantasy of an incredible Hera Zahir heist. It was shattered in the next over when Zahir offered a catch to Darren Lehman. For months, I would replay India vs Australia on PC games, trying to avenge that match. I had an aerial God's Eye View from Cow Corner on a game on Hangama.com. I played God to that match, month after month, changing the ending, creating my version of history. I didn't know why I had this itch, a desire to right that wrong. I didn't know because I was too young.
but i know now that ever since that day i have carried a scar chapter 2 68 hours before the final my eyes are glued to my phone watching the semi final between australia and south africa i'm standing in the check in queue at jfk airport i'm about to commence the first stage of my multimodal 3 day long pilgrimage to ahmedabad a jamaican lady behind me in the queue taps my shoulder you're busy watching that cricket but there's that famous black cricketer over there she says I look up and I see him. In 2017, the unlucky Stuart McGill met the added misfortune of being at the Sydney Cricket Ground the day I took a stadium tour. His career is a good test for separating the wheat of cricket lovers from the chaff who only look at statistics and scoreboards. Much like Dravid with Sachin, Amla with De Villiers, Herath with Mulidharan, or Vakar with Wasim, McGill was only allowed to be great. when Shane Warne decided it was time I walked up to this man who could personally verify that talent has no guarantee who spent a lifetime in the shadow of a giant who can vouch for life never turns out as you expected to better than anybody else who was the toughest batsman you ever bowled to I asked him It's not who you're thinking he quipped with a twinkle in his eye We shared a knowing laugh I asked again and he confessed It was Brian Lara. He was something else. He was a nightmare to bowl to. Brian Lara is another one of those anomalies, singularly great but destined to the shadows, one Tendulkar away from being hailed as the defining batsman of his generation. Yet, those who watched him knew his swagger was trademark. His springy bat lift was art. He was on the cover for all my PC games. His pitiless dismantling of bowlers, whether Kanaria, Peterson, McGrath. or Abdul Razak was legendary his 375 was monumental hitting 400 not out a mere 6 months after Matthew Hayden registered a seemingly unbreakable record was spiteful lara was the sacred product of extraordinary style and genius despite that despite his flourishing precision and suave footwork despite his nobility and greatness he was never the man at jfk that day i wrenched my eyes away from the phone looked up and saw him the prince here in front of me after a life full of richness after accomplishing so much after giving mackel so many sleepless nights after all those heroics brian lara in the flesh for this brief moment from that day i rooted for him for no reason to today when our lives converged from the most contrasting journeys possible a brief moment and then he was gone disappearing the bubble of business classes destiny deviating away from mine once again possibly forever chapter 3 23rd march 2007 india versus sri lanka group b older siblings often say the younger ones have it easy but they conveniently forget that we were forced to have it tough with them when they had it tough For example, when my elder brother was writing his grade 10 board exams, I was put on the same happiness detox as him, lest he be tempted. I couldn't play computer games, I couldn't watch TV. I was encouraged to be a team player. All sports channels had been removed from our cable TV package. We had relocated from Muscat to Dubai. I didn't play cricket in the evenings as I had no new friends. 
my parents didn't mind lest i be tempted into a career in cricket with greg chapel as the dictator i mean coach the national team had also stopped playing cricket arguably the final nail in the coffin was sevag's dismal season i was in my early teens and the world was getting bigger and bigger each year cricket was getting smaller and smaller in relative proportion i had moved on however the world cup still felt important so i convinced my parents to let me watch at a neighbor's house i shouldn't have bothered in the first match india surrendered meekly to bangladesh like a blinded lover like a fool i went back two days later sevak stroked a century and duane levrock dove for an iconic catch and i felt the semblance of hope again again i shouldn't have bothered on 23rd march exactly 4 years from that day i committed blasphemy i left my neighbor's house in the middle of the game i went home and strangely straight to bed a sri lankan family had organized a watch party on the floor above us they cheered loud enough to wake the entire neighborhood whenever an indian batsman got out i lay in bed staring at the ceiling painfully interrupted by their hoots and chants i thought of the next world cup penciled in for 2011 four years till the next one four years that felt too long too far in the distance i would be 17 years old and in grade 11 so much could happen in between all frightening prospects that was the first time i used a world cup to measure my life and predict my future and i've done it ever since i heard the most deafening cheer at some point and i knew it was over the deed was done i tossed and turned for hours in the darkness while the sri lankans loudly celebrated the night away chapter 4 63 hours before the final an hour into the air pat cummins steered to point and set in stone the two teams for the final we probably knew for a week probably even before the tournament probably for years but now for sure india versus australia of course i had this absurd feeling after india qualified the previous day it's stupid to suggest it was given i didn't have any solid reason but it had to be cold feet i felt something similar 12 years ago as the flight attendant served lunch i browsed through the in-flight entertainment inadvertently i landed upon a documentary titled two nations one obsession chronicling the history of india and australia in cricket i put it on and leaned back of course of course chapter 5 2nd april 2011 india was a sri lanka world cup final it's funny how perspectives work for 5 days a week at 5:30 am while it was still dark outside we would be rudely woken up then woken up again and in the case of my brother a third time before we rolled off the bed straight onto the floor and crawled to the washroom to get ready with resigned finality waking up was torture as i brushed my teeth every part of me wished school didn't exist i wished i could go back to sleep i kept hoping for divine intervention until i dejectedly boarded the school bus the point of no return i shared my sorrows with other grumpy students yawning uncontrollably or dozing against the window with our mouths open as we headed deep into the deserts of alwarka in contrast at 6 am on fridays we got up at the first chime of the alarm 
Waking up was joyful. We got ready in a flash and rushed out, fresh and sharp, to play cricket. We played all day on abandoned parking lots across Bardubai, which were animated by the same dream that Mike Marcuse said cast its radiance on Shivaji Park, the basketball courts of Chicago's housing projects, or the football pitches of Sao Paulo slums. We would play and play and play. I don't get to pick what I remember, and maybe this is trivial romanticism again, but some of my favorite memories are those early Friday mornings. The reasons go beyond cricket. Friday, a religiously significant, mandatory day off offices, the first morning of the weekend, is a Dubai you don't hear about often. It had that blissful serenity when the adults tried to catch some rest, when the city was mired in surreal silence. Dubai takes pride in its hustle and chaos. It was always apparent that Friday mornings were an anomaly, an aberration. That is the reason they were so special. It was the calm before the storm. It was ephemeral and only few were there in that decade, in that Dubai, in those neighborhoods. You will know. You just had to be there. For some reason, I've always batted in an ultra-aggressive Sea ball, hit ball style that would have made Sevak tear up. Alas, despite my best intentions, I didn't possess the same talent as the Nawab of Najafkar. I often got dismissed very quickly. I spent most of those mornings sitting wistfully in the corner, chastising myself for a reckless shot. I vowed to take it slow next time and work myself in with more of sea ball, respect ball. After an hour of regret, reflection, and renewed determination, I walked out to bat again. First ball, a rush of blood, and I was back in the pavilion, promising to take it slow next time. I guess Sevak would tear up for a different reason. But that never stopped the desire to play. As temperatures soared above 45 degrees Celsius, we played. As sandstorms ravaged our eyes, we played. When cops arrived to confiscate our bats, we fled and hid in parking garages. We scurried back out after they left, and we played. We played long into the hellish afternoon sun, long into the best days of our lives, until one day, we unknowingly played for the last time, and never again. The school bus rides were for IPL debates. I would write long posts for Facebook groups late into the night, often at the expense of homework. Posters of cricketers peppered my bedroom wall. Cricket was back in my life, and how. Nevertheless, I was also in my late teens, and naturally, extremely busy. Sitting at home all day was offensive, if not a cardinal sin. I spent most evenings loafing at hole-in-the-wall cafeterias, Berjuman, or some earmarked alleys in Karama. Despite my packed schedule, I caught the closing moments of the quarterfinal at Bika Nirvala. For an hour, the regular operations of that restaurant ceased. Food wasn't served, patrons didn't care, waiters didn't move, and chefs leaned over the open counter as over a hundred people stared at the solitary screen in the corner. Another fifty peered through the restaurant's glass windows from outside. Yuvraj Singh stroked the winning runs through covers, sank to his knees, and whipped his bat in anger. As he roared into the skies, so did we. I was at Dubai Mall during the first innings of the semi-final, painting the tricolor on people's faces. I caught the second half at Bombay Chopati. Our entire table of eight had only ordered two smoothies. We sipped them slowly for three hours to keep the table, but no one bothered. When Ms. Paul Huck lofted a catch to Long On, we ran out and danced to the music blaring from our phone speakers. Before we revisit the final, 
we should address the divine elephant in the room. Sachin Tendulkar wasn't just a player, he was a phenomenon. He shattered every batting record for over two decades and cemented his place at the top. Just one trophy was conspicuously missing from his long list of accolades. It wasn't fair. He had tried five times, often waging a solitary battle as the team crumbled around him. Cricket is a team game where the whole is always greater than the sum of the parts. Hence, it values World Cups way more than individual records. This would be his last attempt. After a career of logic-defying knocks, he was at the cusp of 100 international hundreds, an unimaginable feat that will remain untouched for decades. This was not just any attempt. It was one for the ages. It was tailor-made for greatness, the greatest batsman in history reaching an unsurpassable milestone in a World Cup final in Mumbai, his hometown, a city Sunil Gavaskar once called the cradle of cricket. Against the team that eliminated India the previous tournament, at the Vankhare, not too far from Shivaji Park, or the sprawling Maidans of Mumbai that nursed him, guiding India to that elusive trophy in his final attempt. This was the story you'd tell your grandkids. This was an epic for centuries. It was going to be folklore. It was going to be legendary. You couldn't have written a better script. Lasit Malinga disagreed. Surely, if we had the technology, we would have noticed a giant fluctuation on 2nd April as a collective whoosh of air grounded the nation. Sachin edged to Sangakara, leaving a nation stunned, resigned to our fate. As Sachin walked back, shaking his head, I remember the same harsh lesson Ricky Ponting taught me eight years ago. Life never turns out as you expect it to. Nanaji, I got the opportunity to meet Nanaji on this trip due to a confluence of unfortunate events which included a worldwide pandemic and my travel restrictions in the US, six years had elapsed since we met. Over time, as I got older, the gravity of his life started to hit me. I constantly reminded myself that he was not just an endearing grandfather, but in his own way, a living legend, a national monument. For instance, I still find it unreal that he was born before India existed as a country. We made a tryst with destiny. And now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. Not only or in full measure, but very substantially. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. When Jawaharlal Nehru declared a tryst with destiny on a morning in mid-August, Nanaji was at the Redford cheering him on, waving a small flag. He has first-hand accounts of India under every Prime Minister to date. He has rooted for every Indian cricketer in history, first on the radio, then on those black and white television sets, now in colour. He has watched Indian cinema evolve over the years. He has personally witnessed the bruises inflicted by the War of 1971, the emergency, the anti-Sikh riots, and other momentous events in national history. He has observed countless political and cultural uprisings that first dented this nation, for better or worse, then caressed it down a new course, a new generation, a new era. He has seen it all, how a nation was born, how it blossomed, 
matured and reached out. Once at a wedding in Agra, an elderly gentleman sitting next to me leaned over and said, वो आपके जो बाउजी है बचपन में हम साथ में क्रिकेट खेलते थे माई ईयर्स प्रिकटॉप एनी कंटिन्यूड मैं अपनी टीम का पहला बॉलर होता था और वो अपनी टीम के ओपनिंग बैट्समैन उनका एक ही मकसद था हर बॉल पे छक्का मारना है आई लुक एट नाना जी इन वॉन्डर वी हैड नेवर स्पोकन अबाउट इट बट समहाउ बाई सम डिवाइन इंटरवेंशन आई हैड इनहेरिटेड माई बैटिंग स्टाइल डिरेक्टली फ्रॉम हिम There was still so much I didn't know about him. So this time I went armed with a truckload of questions. For three days I sat next to him, watching the news. An eighty-five-year-old's temperament is volatile, so I chose my moments sparingly. I played the waiting game. I was richly rewarded for my patience, whether for his sporadic bursts of personal anecdotes or just to watch his face light up at the mention of Raj Kapoor. Whereupon he gazed into the distance and murmured dreamily. राज कपूर असली कलाकार था वन इवनिंग आफ्टर इंडियोरिंग द स्क्रीम्स ऑफ अ डजन न्यूज पैनलिस्ट फॉर आवर्स आई स्पॉटेड हिम यॉनिंग एंड लुकिंग अराउंड दिस वॉज द ओपनिंग दैट हैड बीन वेटिंग फॉर ऑल डे एंड आई पाउंसड आई ब्रॉड ऑफ गावस्कर टू वॉर्म हिम अप ही स्माइल्ड एंड स्टार्ट रेमिनेसिंग अबाउट क्रिकेट एट सम पॉइंट आई रिमाइंडेड हिम ऑफ हिस टाइमली इंट्रोडक्शन ऑफ दूरदर्शन स्पोर्ट्स इन टू माई लाइफ नाना जी आपने ही ये शौक लगाया था ही पियर एट मी इंटेंटली स्टेयरिंग राइट थ्रू ऑलमोस्ट लाइक साइजिंग मी अपर ही वॉज अ मैन हु हैड विटनेस द इम्पैक्ट ऑफ एक्शन इवेंट्स एंड आइडियाज ऑन अ नेशन फॉर नियरली अ सेंचुरी ही हैड सीन मल्टीपल रिपल्स वेल इन टू स्टॉम्स एंड देन फेड अवे ह्योर आई वॉज एट दी अदर एंड ऑफ द जर्नी वॉकिंग इन टू हिस हाउस आफ्टर ईयर्स एंड क्लेमिंग हिज इन्फ्लुएंस Here we were facing the consequences of a ripple from 20 years ago. This was a butterfly effect he had not just witnessed but a storm he had created for better or worse. He peered at me in silence and then said, Us din ek paudha lagaya tha. Aaj wo ped ban gaya hai. Mahendra Singh Dhoni launched Novan Kolasekra into the sky finished it off in style and time once again stood still I stared at the screen unable to process ever since India qualified I had this absurd feeling almost like cold feet a loss was a world we understood no we belonged in but what happens if we win what happens if we reach the world's end The room erupted around me as people shrieked, laughed, and sobbed. They jumped up and down, threw things, whooped and hugged. We could hear similar eruptions in the neighborhood. But I stared at the screen. The scene around me was a blur. For a rare moment, I was motionless, speechless, and oddly thoughtless. Despite the impending pandemonium, the impending thunderstorm, I was completely blank, at peace. What is it about sport? It's just a silly little game. It's an imagined reality. It's a giant waste of time. Football is just people running behind ball. Cricket is just people hitting ball with stick. You don't have to dig deep to spot its undeniable pointlessness. 
Every sport is the pursuit of a worthless object or target bound by made-up rules with made-up consequences for meaningless trophies. What's the point? Even if you could muster some far-fetched purpose, would it warrant the incumbent jingoism, violence and hostility? Would it warrant the mimic warfare that George Orwell called war minus the shooting? I say no, it doesn't. What then? Why bother at all? To an extent, I agree. It's just a silly little game. But this puts me in a precarious position. If it is a silly little game, if it is so pointless, then there's something I simply cannot explain. I cannot explain why we ran down the roads of Bardubai on 2nd April, whipping off our shirts, pumping fists at the heavens above, beating our chest and screaming our lungs out. I cannot explain why our screams turned into giddy laughter. I cannot tell you when they turned into tears. We flitted involuntarily from laughs to sobs, from hoots to howls. We were in transcendental limbo between peace and chaos, on the brink of insanity. And for one night only, we gave in. I cannot explain why, as we ran, people poured out from every corner and ran with us, everyone afflicted with the same madness, laughing and crying at whim. We ran, we ran, and we ran. And we never looked back. We ran until the horde was so large that we couldn't run anymore. I cannot explain why we swarmed every street. I cannot explain why we danced all night. People hung perilously from balconies, waving banners. We climbed on top of jeeps as they honked through the mob, singing at the top of our voices, leading the chants. We hugged people we didn't like, didn't know, or would never meet again. No one had sent a memo. No one was in charge. But somehow, tolls and horns were played, colors were thrown, and flags were waved, all in unison. No one had rehearsed, but our movements were in harmony. We celebrated in Dubai, our adopted home, an Arab city in an Arab country. Every year we become too Arab for the Indians, but remain too Indian for the Arabs. We were the exiles, the vagabonds, who find it harder and harder to answer the questions, who are we and where is home? That night, it didn't matter. Whatever we were, whatever we had, it was our own little world, just ours. The next day didn't matter. Office, school, or university be damned. It was our night. We owned it. Nobody dared snatch it from us. And we would decide when and if it would end. What is it about sport? If it is just another silly little game, I cannot explain why insanity was embraced with open arms that night. I cannot explain why we didn't feel alone. For once, we didn't feel lost. I cannot explain why magic was not just in the air, but also in our hearts. If it is just another silly little game, then for one night, why did it unify a nation? Chapter 6 62 hours before the final Somewhere above the North Atlantic I lean back in my seat. Of course. Genuine cricket rivalries are endangered. There's always a furore about the Ashes, even though the home team never loses. India versus Pakistan always overpromises but underdelivers. For those reasons, I've never cared much for either. For me, the rivalry of the century has always been India versus Australia. It's easy. You can start with the final frontier and border Gavaskar 2004. You can move to Monkey Gate 
then to that quarterfinal in 2011, then to that series of run heists in 2014, and then to that semifinal in 2015. It goes on and on. That eliminator in Mohali in 2016, where Kohli completed his transition to superhuman. Every recent border Gavaskar series, whether in 2015, 2017, 19, 21, or 23, exhibitions of the highest caliber. England and New Zealand haven't always been competitive overseas. Pakistan rarely justifies its potential. South Africa is choking on internal quotas. Sri Lanka, Zimbabwe, and West Indies are dying. Only India and Australia have been consistently competitive. Only they have sustained success and formidability in every playing condition. Since the turn of the millennium, they have fought so many notorious battles and blazed a history trail so dominant that it was foolish to expect anything else. Of course. Cricket is no longer a constant in my life. I barely watch or play anymore. But I owed myself one World Cup final. I had to cross this item off the bucket list, regardless of who made it there and regardless of the outcome, based on a promise I made in 2015. I've always measured my life in four-year chunks and now it's too late. I cannot help but create a lifelong memory during every World Cup. It's inseparable from my story. So I embarked on a three-day journey from New York to Ahmedabad. 20 years from that final, that match that must not be named, from the beginning of my fandom to the dying years now, life had come full circle. India versus Australia. Destined to do this forever. Chapter 7, 5th July 2014, Lord's Bicentenary Celebration I had watched cricket for 12 years before I got the opportunity to attend my first live game. For some reason, I believe my involuntary asceticism would be rewarded one day. I just knew. I was right. Lord's was hosting a bicentenary celebration. An exhibition match between bonafide cricket legends would mark the special occasion. As far as first live games go, I couldn't have asked for a bigger payoff than all my childhood superheroes playing at the home of cricket. So on the morning of the celebration, I opened the website to buy a ticket to my dream match. Later that day, I saw my heroes. Did I cry that day? They materialized before my eyes, looking just like the images on my posters. They ran in the same manner as they did on the television. I watched Sevag and Gilchrist blaze away. I watched Tendulkar and Lara join forces. I watched Afridi, Vaughn and Mulidharan walk out at the Mecca. So it is an appropriate question to ask. Did I cry that day? I didn't. I didn't cry because I wasn't there. You see, I made the mistake of watching Goodwill Hunting that year. So just when I was about to buy the ticket, I was innocently charmed by the caresses of first love and the blissfulness of youth. And I closed the browser immediately. I didn't go to the match because I had to go see about a girl. But unlike Robin Williams, I've regretted it ever since. Chapter 8, 26 March 2015 India vs Australia, semi-final I'm hunched over my laptop at 4am. It's been raining in Cambridge all night. I haven't slept a minute and I don't intend to. Something about this match felt eerily similar. Something about the way the Australians decimated the bowlers on their way to a mammoth score. Something about the way we pegged our hopes on another prodigy, another run machine, another master. 
Something about the way we felt anything was possible as long as he was out there. Something about the way he skied a pull of Mitchell Johnson, much like his idol did of McGrath 12 years ago. Something about the way the ball hung in the air, willed by a billion people to stay up, stay afloat, never land, never fall down. No! I blurted to an empty room. Virat Kohli walked back, shaking his head. I sighed and promised to decouple my love for cricket from India's success from here on. It was the only way. I wrote articles for cricket websites every month. I played club cricket on the sprawling meadows of Cambridgeshire on the weekends. Cricket was a regular part of my life. But that didn't mean it would stay. I've always measured my life in four-year chunks between World Cups. It was easier to predict where I would be in life when I was in school. Moving from grade 3 to grade 7 to grade 11 was daunting, but had some semblance of familiarity. Now, at the age of 21, at the end of my student life, I faced a veil of darkness and uncertainty for the first time. It was frightening to think of 2019 when I would be the grand old age of 25. What happens next? What happens when I leave university and step out into the real world? I was at the event horizon, at a singularity, and life would never be the same again. Chapter 9 32 Hours Before the Final Dubai International Airport Excuse me, what's your name? I had just settled into my seat on my flight to Ahmedabad. Before I could find my bearing, the man in the seat across the aisle tapped my arm. I turned around and raised an eyebrow questioningly. He ogled with suppressed excitement. I spotted his wife peeking over his shoulder. I don't see cricket, but my wife wants to know what you play for the Indian team. I can understand the confusion. I'm wearing the jersey. I look, hopefully, young enough and hopefully lean enough to pass off as a professional athlete in his eyes. He clearly doesn't watch any sports. I was loudly discussing the match with my friends at the boarding gate. This gentleman's wife may have only heard misleading parts of the conversation. She didn't know my parents had squashed that dream 16 years ago. If I play Indian team, I don't need I replied sardonically. We both looked around. We were squeezed into the tiniest economy seats. We were in the last row of a budget airline that will charge you for everything from food to a blanket to more than three sneezes. It was clear that no cricketer, not even the drinks boy, would be found within five miles of this aircraft. The passenger mumbled sheepishly. His wife's face fell. She stopped peeking over his shoulder and leaned back into her seat in disappointment. Chapter 10, 9th and 10 July 2019, India vs New Zealand, semi-final. I took leave from work to watch the match. I pushed a client meeting to the following day. But rain postponed the game to the next day and I faced the unpleasant prospect of going to work when the match resumed. The hour I spent in the meeting room, absent-mindedly nodding along, coincided with the infamous 45 minutes of bad cricket. After the meeting, I rushed to a shisha cafe to inspect the ruins trying to make sense of Dhoni's tactics, yet not surprised. I had preemptively requested the day off on Sunday, a working day in the Middle East back then, to watch the final. My manager replied to my email request with, Approved, but what if India doesn't make it to the final? I took the leave anyway. I had made a promise.
chapter 11 19th november 2023 india versus australia the final it took me 71 hours to get to the final in a way it also took me 20 years as i sat high up in the nosebleeds at motera the nation's epicenter the eye of the storm for a night i couldn't help but muse at the convergence of multiple timelines i saw steve smith 2017 was the last time we were in the same spot his hands were aloft after scoring a pristine century at the gabba during the ashes the summer of steve smith was the peak of his prowess he was on autopilot towards becoming the greatest australian batsman and captain in history 6 years later after the ignominy of ball tampering scorn and ridicule after being sacked as captain and finding his spot in limited overs in question things are different now I saw Narendra Modi, the 14th Prime Minister of India, in the stadium he humbly named after himself. 2015 was the last time we were in the same spot. I was one of 25,000 people giving him a standing ovation at a speech at the Dubai Stadium, believing his promise of a new India, a proud India, a great India. We wanted to be part of this political and cultural uprising that promised to caress this nation into a new course, a new generation, a new era. Eight years later, with the rise in bigotry, censorship, communal violence, and sectarianism, things are different now. I saw Virat Kohli. Twenty fourteen was the last time we were in the same spot. His head was hung in shame as he dragged himself to the pavilion at the Oval. They said Kohli had been exposed by James Anderson. They claimed the hype train had been derailed. It was the death of his career. It felt like they wanted him to fail, wanted him to be ordinary. as if his prolonged success made them uncomfortable 9 years later he's the most prolific batsman the greatest ever the king of the world and things are different now pat cummins banged one shot kohli chopped it onto his stumps 130000 people let out the loudest gasp you'll ever hear bang for weeks after the final people have asked me Did I cry that day? There is merit to the question. There will not be many instances, if ever, when you collectively feel the sadness of one thirty thousand people. When anguish was not just an emotion but an aura, it seeped out, morphed into a black cloud, and weighed on us every second, choking, suffocating, blocking all the light. I should have seen it coming. not just because australia also had a story to tell in the 1996 world cup they forfeited their group match against sri lanka there were whispers that they were scared of playing spinners in the subcontinent in the final they won pleasantly paired with their biggest fear in eerie similarity they clawed their way to that spooky score that has plagued multiple world cup finals 241 travis head and manas labashin just had to replicate the perfect template Arvinda De Silva and Arjuna Ranatunga created against their own team in a World Cup final. Even the captain had a template. Once again, an Australian captain was a tornado. Australia, a ruthless dynasty. On the other hand, India walked in like they knew they would win, like it was meant to be. The moment it went slightly off script, they had no idea. Left helpless, shell shocked, like a fish out of water. The crowd booed the lack of intent in taking singles in the first innings. We booed the lack of intent in restricting singles in the second. We were confused, arms crossed, hands in the air. Some shouted advice, some cursed in anger. We were frustrated. 
Temba Bavuma had shown us how to defend a low score against this team in the previous match. Why weren't we aggressive with our fielding positions? From my vantage point high up at Cow Corner, with God's eye view of another India versus Australia match, it was obvious what was happening. This wasn't a one-off. It went back decades. If you're an Indian cricket fan, you're probably accustomed to losing tournaments we should have won. South Africa is slandered unfairly because it's India that's really been choking, choking to less skilled teams for decades, choking to favorable conditions, choking when it mattered. It hurt more because you knew Australia didn't need this win. They will go home with smiles. They will brush it off as another game. It will be praised for a day and then they will move on. Their sporting culture is different. Some would call it healthy. The perception of athletes is different. Some would call it healthy. For us, we needed it. We needed it because it goes beyond sport and always has. After the 1996 quarterfinal, a columnist wrote the following words. Like all the poor nations of the third world, both India and Pakistan find the field of sports a cover-up for their backwardness in all other modern fields. If you're an Indian, then you're probably accustomed to being looked down upon despite your merit. It means contending with a country still behind in literacy, poverty, governance or discrimination. India is still developing, still in the shadows. You must understand, in this country, cricket is a cultural phenomenon, if not a religion, more than just a silly little sport because it is where we feel ahead, on top, above the rest of the world. It's where we finally display our true potential. It's where we feel strong. This is why Virat Kohli represents more than just athleticism. He is to Indian cricket what Sachin was earlier, what WG Grace was to England, Victor Trumper and Don Bradman to Australia, Viv Richards to West Indies and Imran Khan to Pakistan. They represent the zeitgeist, the spirit, the future, the embodiment of a national identity. Cricket is a rare escape. It's an excuse. It always has been. Mike Marcuse described it with the following words. Impatient with and sometimes disgusted by the many realities of Indian life. Corruption, poverty, inefficiency. They still desire to assert themselves as Indians and cricket has allowed them to do this. But defeat exposed the hollowness of this compensatory cricket nationalism. This is why we succumb to the dread. This is why it always hurts more than it should. Winning a World Cup is a harmonious national celebration that comes once in a lifetime. That day may come again. If it does, it'll be glorious, euphoric. A day when cricket will only matter till a certain point, then brush aside. That's what I went chasing after in a journey of both hours and years. A desperate attempt to recreate when the night was loud but my mind was calm when I was home. Or, that day may never come again. This is why it hurts. This is why it will hurt for years. This is why we stood in silence, not speaking, not clapping, looking but not seeing. This is why it felt like a funeral, like we were all mourning. At some point during the post-match presentation, after the fireworks, drone show, or medals all felt like daggers to the heart, I looked up at the VIP box. I spotted Anushka Sharma, forlorn, gazing into the distance, 
resigned to a thousand yard stare. This is what Brendan McCullum said after the 2015 final. You know, I got back into the dressing room, sat down, and just laughed. All my life, I had dreamt of that moment. As a child, I played it out against mates day after day. And as a man, I practiced for it with an almost eerie certainty that one day it would come. I mean the World Cup final against Australia at the MCG on a hot and sunny day. And I was captain of my country. It cannot get any better. I was more ready for this than anyone outside my closest circle of friends and family could begin to understand. After a lifetime of dreaming about exactly that moment, I messed it up. So I laughed. Otherwise, I'd still be crying. So it is an appropriate question to ask. Did I cry that day? On 19th November, I was reminded of the lesson Ricky Ponting taught me all the way back in 2003. The same one that reverberated in our minds when Sachin walked back at the Vankhade in 2011. The same one that laughed in the face of India dominating a home World Cup, going undefeated, breaking records. Life never turns out as you expect it to. But I didn't cry. I didn't cry because I was there. I was there despite all the obstacles in getting to Motera, despite the exorbitant costs, despite a hellish journey. I was there that day, marinating in the ontological pleasure of being witness to history when everyone I grew up watching converged into a modern-day Colosseum and shared the same hope. If it is just another silly little sport, just bat and ball, then it's all I needed for those 10 overs under the lights when 130,000 people screamed, danced and sang in unison. When our raw primal instincts were on display. In that moment, despite my awareness of the brutality of sporting jingoism, it was absolutely, without any qualification, man versus man, life versus death, war minus the shooting. It took me years to realize this, but it's not cricket I was addicted to. In that hour, I was back at the parking lots of Muskar and Mankhul, back again in the meadows of Cambridgeshire, back again dancing on the streets of Dubai, back again in front of the TV on a winter night, watching cricket with Nanaji. I was there when we felt every emotion possible, and I felt it with them. For an hour, I was one of them, one of the nation, one of its people, and our hearts beat as one. I didn't cry because I was finally not lost. I was accepted. I had a tribe. I belonged. Thank you for listening to No Time for Stories. If you liked what you just heard, then do consider sharing the story on any social media platform of your choice. We are all artists of some form, and this is just my form of art. Every story takes me months of time and effort, and it will truly find expression if more people got the opportunity to read or listen to it. If you'd like to make a donation, then you can do so on Patreon or Anchor. For other forms of love and support, you can subscribe to this channel on YouTube, follow this channel on Instagram or Twitter, or follow me personally.